Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Consider the numbers. At age 79, Willie Nelson's released his 66th studio album. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Today on Sound Opinions, author Joe Nick Potosky takes us through the life and career of American icon Willie Nelson. And later, Jim and I get some advice from a real-life desert island DJ. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Wow, fantastic baby. That's a track called Fantastic Baby by the Korean boy group Big Bang. Maybe not a familiar name to you and me, Jim, but they're a huge deal in the world of Korean pop or K-pop, a genre that's exploded over the past year. Korea's long been this cultural force in Asia. It had huge success exporting TV dramas and music to Japan and China in the last couple of decades, but it's only now that the Korean corporate pop machine seems poised to capture a truly global audience. Greg, we're seeing this with acts like Big Bang and Girls' Generation selling out arenas from Los Angeles to Singapore. And last August, Billboard announced the creation of a K-pop Hot 100 chart. So to take us through this phenomenon and its potential impact on the U.S., we're joined by spin editor David Bevan. David visited Korea this year for a feature for the magazine. David, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi, guys. So I first really started thinking about K-pop when it was the subject of a panel at South by Southwest in March. How did you first hear this music? I had come across it in kind of a weird place. I started seeing it crop up in indie pop. Artists in Canada and the States that were sort of glomming onto it in a weird way, mostly aesthetically, but there seemed to be kind of an odd fascination with the way this stuff is presented, the way it sounds. It's very glossy, almost like the bubblegum pop music that we became accustomed to in the late 90s, but on steroids. So you're Britney Spears or you're in sync, but reimagined through an Asian pop filter. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is they took apart that Western pop blueprint. And they built something much more efficient, much more aggressive in a sensory way than what we had before. And the same way, I think that they were able to streamline their business model as well. As fascinating as the music is, it seemed like they have a business model that they could export as well. And that's this training system that they have in place. Which is This is fascinating. You said that they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and prep each member of a boy band or one of these K-pop girl groups for a year or two, intensive study to groom them to become a star. Yeah. 
these entertainment companies or management companies, or however you'd like to call them, depending on what they've sort of conceptualized, whether they want to do a 98-member boy band or they want to do just three girls, any number of these trainees, depending on whether or not they're ready, can kind of be plucked out of the system and placed into these sort of brand scenarios, these quote-unquote concepts. They're sort of dreaming up these concepts depending on the markets that they'd like to attack, and then they... They, they have this farm out. team that they can draw on. Yeah. Give us some specific examples. What are the most successful K-pop groups? What are they selling? What are the individual sounds like? Girls' Generation is a particularly successful girl group. They offer a, a much safer, candied Europop sound. There are nine of them. It's highly choreographed. It's a very tried-and-true pop paradigm. And then on the other side, you have 21. It's a much smaller group. And the way that they're presented is as this band of free spirits. They kind of have a funky way of dressing themselves. They offer that girl power thing. You know, there are girls with machine guns <laughs> and they kind of punked out hair and, you know, spiked shoulder pads. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's far more aggressive, both sonically and visually, and I think that that had a lot of success in appealing to both boys and girls. K-pop is able to deliver a wide variety of flavors. I don't know that it made it in the store, but I went and saw us over of a Top of the Pops show in a television studio there, and there, there were so many groups, but they all had their own sort of fan clubs, and it was kind of funny because to me a lot of it, it inevitably sort of sounded the same, but kids are able to develop relationships with a lot of these pop idols, you know, just by the way that they're packaged and presented, hmm. which sort of figures into the phenomenon itself. Since the 90s, Korean pop culture has been exported at an incredible rate. If you figure in the way things happen now with social media and the internet, this stuff is bouncing around between kids, not just in Korea. It's being broadcast out of Seoul really, really, really well and really, really quickly. China, Japan, starting to filter in the U.S. market. What about the language barrier? How is that being overcome? I can't stress enough how wonderfully constructed a lot of this stuff is from top to bottom, whether it's the training model or it's the business model. When they're building these songs as well, they're wise to include choruses in English and sort of swatches of what I call graphic tea English here and there. One thing I, I didn't really mention earlier when I was talking about the training system is that not only are they learning song composition and choreographed dance, they're also learning a variety of foreign languages. They're learning Japanese, they're learning Chinese, and I think more and more you'll see them learning English as well. 
you know, they've reinvented themselves over there in Korea. I know the industry was gutted about a decade ago because of all the piracy. Now they've apparently got one of the biggest pop music industries in the world. Are there any lessons to be gleaned from that for the North American music industry? Well, you know, it's actually my understanding that they continue to battle a pretty serious problem in terms of piracy and and copyright to the point where I think a lot of the online music portals, their versions of iTunes, have decreased the prices of single downloads so much that a lot of these artists have a lot of trouble generating income by way of sales. I think that part of the reasons why you see K-pop groups moving into other markets as aggressively as they are is, is out of necessity because the domestic market is bare and has been decimated. So they're trying to move into the North American market, which has its own problems. Do you see a future for K-pop in North America? I do. It's really hard to predict what's going to happen here, whether it's going to catch on as much as it has in, say, Japan. They have thought the market out as carefully and prudently as they need to, and I think that they've smartly made alliances with the likes of Snoop Dogg, Will I Am, and Swiss Beats. Kanye West is been... working with this as well, right? Yeah, he did a, a music video with a boy group. I think they're called Boyfriend. I think it's been buried because it's not particularly good. And I think that was probably an experiment on his part. But I think that, you know, there are huge financial gains to be made for Western artists collaborating or allying themselves with K-pop groups. So maybe it's only a matter of time before we see a Lady Gaga Girls Generation collaboration. (laughs) David, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. David Bevan is the author of the Spin Magazine report Soul Train, Inside Korea's Pop Factory. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim Diriotis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that, of course, is On the Road Again, probably the single most famous song by the great Willie Nelson. Now, if you think you're not interested in Willie Nelson, think again. I'm not a huge fan of mainstream country, Greg, as you know, but Willie Nelson transcends genre, and he just released an album, his 66th, that underlines that point. On his new release, Heroes, Willie sings country standards from the 30s and 40s, but he also shares the mic with Snoop Dogg. At 79, he's still testing the boundaries of what country music is and can be. In 2009, we welcomed Texas author and music authority Joe Nick Potosky on the show to talk about his biography, Willie Nelson, An Epic Life. In it, Joe Nick makes the case that Nelson is the quintessential Texas musician, American icon, and outlaw. The way that he mixed country with rock and jazz and basically every strain of American music has really been unmatched in the last half century. And his life itself parallels the birth and development of recorded music, if you think about that, as well as the history of Texas since the Great Depression. With a career this significant and sweeping, it's no surprise that Willie Nelson has got more than a few biographies to his name. So we started out our conversation with Joe Nick 
by asking him what new he thought he could bring to the table. Well, I think I'd known him as a writer to an artist over this period of time and really got to see it blow up in Austin in the early 70s and and this whole thing called Texas music. That term didn't exist back then. And really seeing him grow into this one-name icon that transcends Texas, that transcends America. So I thought I had at least that familiarity to go from. But once I had that in hand, it was really learning about how he got to that point, particularly the 50s and 60s when he's growing up and trying to make it uh, as a songwriter and as a musician. And then going back to not only his early days in Abbott, Texas, growing up uh, poor in a rural farming community, but doing family genealogy and going back to Arkansas where his people came from. Mm. I just wanted to go deep. And I, I really do think he's the quintessential Texan, not just the great Texas music icon, but uh, especially after uh, some of the politicians we've had in the public eye. I wanted to write about someone that really represented what I consider to be Texas values. I, I want to uh, quote something that, that you wrote, Joe Nick, about that. For those of us uh, not lucky enough to, to have spent a lot of time in Texas, because Texas is a way of life. You wrote, Texans by nature are independent, free thinkers, open, outgoing, and friendly. Iconoclasts, they respect tradition but are not beholden to it. Whether it's God or sin, they tend to embrace excess. <laughs> That's what you're talking about when you talk about Texas and Willie Nelson. Exactly. And I mean, this, you know, we, we have a, a pretty good way to wrestle with the sacred and the profane and live comfortably with both. And I think that Willie embodies that. I mean, I saw him uh, after his July 4th picnics. I saw him singing uh, a song he wrote that really brought him to Nashville, Family Bible. There's a family Bible on the table. It's pages warm and hard to read. But the family Bible on the table Will ever be my key to memories. To hear him sing Family Bible about 20 feet from you in church, you can't get any closer to whatever the, the, the higher power is. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, he's telling you the filthiest, dirty joke <laughs> you've ever heard. And he's really good at it. Yeah. And he loves t- doing it. To me, that's the idea of growing up in a dry county just across from a wet county and a bunch of honky-tonks and singing in church, singing in bars. Uh, th- that's him. That, that's that's beautifully said, Joe Nick. And uh, one of the things I think that uh, I sort of grasped more uh, concretely after I read this book is this poetic spirit that comes through. I mean, Willie didn't grow up, you know, it wasn't like he was Harvard-educated and read all the great books or anything like that. Grew up in a culture, you know, where picking cotton was the way you made a living and, you know, was a door-to-door salesman of, like, encyclopedias and vacuum cleaners and raised by his grandparents. I mean, it was a pretty hard scrabble life. And yet out of this emerged this gift for poetic language and this phrasing as a singer, very sophisticated sensibility as an artist. How do you attribute the fact that he was able to string words together so beautifully at such an early age, despite the fact that he didn't have the traditional higher education that you maybe associate with some of those things? No. Well, I mean, if you, if you want to get 
down and dirty. He came from a family, hillbillies from the Ozarks in Arkansas. And in that context, really rural and really poor, his grandparents that ended up raising him were singing school teachers. And I love this idea that they kind of supplemented his uh, money that he made with uh, being a blacksmith with going around to these uh, little communities and taking over a school or a church for a week or two and teaching the whole community how to sing using shape notes, which, you know, you don't have to be literate to understand shape Mm -hmm. notes. And there's poetry in that and the fact that his grandmother would write church spiritual lyrics at night. I mean, this was a family that was tied to music and was tied uh, to the idea of, of writing words, but they weren't educated people by any stretch of the imagination. He was just encouraged in all the right ways by his family, uh, who didn't discourage music, and by his teachers at school. And, you know, as, as hard as it was growing up, and, and they say, uh, you know, uh, friends of his that grew up with them, yeah, it was a Great Depression. We was all poor, but the Nelsons, they was really poor. Well, it was so poor that the first horse he rode was the family cow ready. But despite all that, his sister Bobby said, uh, you know, they were the stars at Abbott Elementary, junior high and high school because they could play music. So whenever there was a gathering, they'd call the Nelson kids in. And I asked Bobby, I said, when did you know you were a success? And she said, we always were a success. (laughs) So that's kind of there's a confidence there Mm -hmm. that. I, I think no one should mistake this good-natured guy. He's got an ego, and he's he's got confidence. They both do. And they're doing exactly what their grandparents raised him to do 70-some-odd years ago. Shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear Biting on a bullet, pulling out all of his hair A Shotgun Willie's got all of his family there can't make a record if you ain't got nothing to say You can't make a record if you ain't got nothing to say You can't play music if you don't know nothing to play We'll continue our conversation about Willie Nelson with Texas writer Joe Nick Petoskey after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, it's Greg's turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. On the family plan A shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear Biting on a bullet Pulling out all of his hair Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 
312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. The red-headed stranger from Blue Rock, Montana rode into town one day and under his knees was a raging black stallion walking behind was a bay the red-headed stranger had eyes like thunder and his lips they were sad and tight his little lost love lay asleep on the hillside and his heart was heavy Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Diragatis. I'm here with Greg Cott. And today we are revisiting our 2009 conversation with biographer Joe Nick Petoskey, author of Willie Nelson, An Epic Life. The 79-year-old American icon has just put out a new album called Heroes, 66 studio albums into his career. Willie Nelson is someone we consider a major artist, but while he's been writing and performing music since he was a kid in Texas, he didn't achieve major commercial success until the mid-1970s. Joe Nick, uh, as we were discussing earlier, Willie really didn't have an easy time breaking into the music industry ever. No. (laughs) (laughs) Never quite fit. No, this is what I love. I mean, knowing what little I do about the record business and (laughs) and, uh, knowing what I know about Willie and trying the walls he came up against, which were not always in his autobiography or briefly referred to and then skipped over. I just love these clashes where, you know, the system was like keeping him shut out. And yet all along the way, there were little flashes of brilliance. I mean, it's... His recordings weren't that distinguished really until 59 when he when he was uh, cutting for D Records and he happened to cut Nightlife uh, in Houston. And, and it's, it's a jazz, it's a blues song, it ain't country. Many people just like me dreaming of old used to be And the nightlife ain't a good life but it's my life. But up till then, his stuff's pretty primitive and, and raw. And then when he becomes uh, famous as a songwriter, this period in Nashville, 12 years, it's not enough to be a successful, very wealthy songwriter. And that's what he was. Because the story is all about him spending his money to basically keep a band and to stay on the road. Because he didn't want to just write songs for Farron Young and Ray Price. And that's, you know, Farron and Ray both were trying to offer him big money. Just stay at home and write for me. Mm. And they didn't realize he want, it's not he didn't want to write for him. He wanted to be them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the real struggle. Well, it's, it's a great part of the book where he's, he goes to Nashville. He's been all over the country, and he eventually goes to the songwriting capital. You know, Nashville's exploding. The country pop sound is starting to come in. He's got these huge hits for Farron Young with Hello Walls and Crazy for Patsy Cline and Roy Orbison does Pretty Paper. Pretty pencils to write I love you Pretty paper Pretty ribbons of blue 
he's making a, a ton of money off the songwriting, and yet they have no clue as to what to do with him <laughs> as a recording artist. I mean, obviously we can sit back now and laugh at the Nashville establishment, but what's your perspective on that, Joe Nick, in terms of, you know, Willie wasn't easily molded and easily shaped either. He wasn't going to play by their rules either, right? I mean, it goes both ways. Well, he, didn't, he didn't fit in the box. Joe Allison, who signed him to Liberty just after he had all the songwriting hits in 1961, he knew what Willie was. And there's these sessions, uh, obscure sessions he did in L.A. with uh, Earl Palmer on drums and Red Calendar on bass. I mean, we're talking a jazz trio mm-hmm. and his soon-to-be wife, Shirley Colley. And they're, they're scatting like Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. Way down in Columbus, Georgia, wanna be back in Tennessee. Allison dug him. He understood. This guy's like Sinatra. But that wasn't enough, and it didn't last, and Liberty blew up. Well, Chet Atkins signed him to RCA, which was about the most prestigious label in Nashville in 64. And the story of Chet trying to break Willie through, he, it's amazing because Chet was the master of the Nashville sound. We look back now, it was kind of formulaic, but he tried to fit Willie into the box many times as a jazz singer, as, a, as backed up by the Texas Troubadours, and nothing worked. So I'm not saying Chet was clueless. But they didn't understand Willie, and and the important thing to remember is even in by 1965, when they let him do a, a live album because it's cheap, and they do country music concert at one of the places where it's it's sacred ground to him, Panther Hall in Fort Worth. He's making a lot of money there, mm-hmm. going to Texas on weekends. And look, he's a guy that he's not wearing a nudie suit. He said <laughs> after playing with Ray Price that you weren't going to get me in a nudie suit again. Mm-hmm. He's dressing like Hugh Hefner's giving him dressing tips. <laughs> That's rebellious in mm-hmm. the Nashville context at the time. And one of the few songs he covers on live country music concert in 65 is a song by this band, this this famous country band. He, he jokes on the record, uh, The Beatles. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Nashville's trying, and they want to expand their reach, but they don't know what to do with this guy. <laughs> and, and Chet didn't, and Willie didn't know what to do. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis here with Greg Cott, and our guest is Texas music expert and author Joe Nick Petoskey. We're talking about the life and career of music legend Willie Nelson. So, uh, Joe Nick, you're describing Willie's lack of success during his time with RCA, 14 albums worth. Following that, he moves to Austin. For a lot of people, that looked like giving up. Yeah, that's the career is over. But it ended up working out, right? I mean, to what extent did Willie Nelson make Austin the live music capital of America, and to what extent did Austin make Willie? Well, if you want to personalize it, he's the guy, he's the face of all this, but... There was already a, a nice scene cooking that he walked into. And I, and understand, he was playing in Austin. Um, I remember he did a double bill with Hank Thompson in 65 at UT. So mm. there was that backdrop. But this kind of alternative scene 
was already up and running and cooking, but there was no one from the country realm. All these acts were playing rock and roll and folk music that was very heavily influenced by country because it was like kind of the native music. Mm -hmm. But Willie was the only one that had the background that actually came from traditional country. He legitimized the whole scene from another direction. You have a great description of what Austin was like in the early 70s. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of the book. You hone in on one moment, that concert in August of 72 at the Armadillo World Headquarters. Oh, yeah. Willie is the gentleman farmer at this point, right? And uh, he's 39 years old, well past his quote-unquote prime. And it's this great moment where it all sort of comes together. The counterculture meets the country icon, and, and, and this new blend emerges. Well, if if any venue represented this strange little mix that was going on, this music scene that was blowing up in Austin, it was the Armadillo World Headquarters. And it was very much based on the same model as the Fillmore and, and the Avalon in San Francisco because there was there was a lot of Austin people out in San Francisco. So it was a hippie collective that took over a National Guard armory right across the river from downtown Austin. And at that time, South Austin was a very different place. They called it Bubba Land. It was where a lot of people didn't go because it was your where your rednecks lived. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's SoCo and it's very trendy. But the Armadillo was was this place that they had already brought in like the Burrito Brothers. Ry Cooter had already played there, Captain Beefheart. But really Eddie Wilson, uh who is the big head honcho there at uh, the Armadillo, he had been turned on to to Willie when he was out doing a dope run to San Francisco. And Willie had heard about the armadillo, so it's like when Willie and Paul show up looking for a gig, there's a meeting of the minds. And for the next year and a half or so, there was this – the armadillo and the armadillo staff kind of merged together with Willie's people, and it, and it really did elevate the whole scene, mainly through these uh, attempts at doing video and television, which ended up leading to Austin City Limits, and certainly with the Willie Nelson Fourth of July picnic. They kind of set the stage for all this. Mm-hmm. We are talking to Joe Nick Petoskey, who has written this book, Willie Nelson and Epic Life. Joe Nick, I've never been to the Willie Nelson compound or one of these picnics, but <laughs> everything I've read about him, your, your descriptions most vividly, the clouds of marijuana spoke. And this guy is country, and this guy sings about, about God and love and romance, and, but he is like an unrepentant hedonist mm-hmm. <laughs> and particularly fond of this leaf. He's a cat. You know, he's a hip cat. Look, his his first taste was back in the 50s in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. So it's always been around. But uh, I think when he moved to Austin in the 70s, it, it was pretty clear that getting stories from his oldest daughter, from Connie, his wife at the time, and from Paul English, his best friend, how Willie was a lousy drunk and a really mean drunk. You didn't want to be around him. He'd smash in doors and windows. But they all say pot tamp down the rage. Mm-hmm. And Willie says as much. It works for him. And I tell you what, if someone indulges in, in, in such habits, there's not a better person in the world to be sharing that with. Willie, absolutely. There's so many things that he's been associated with in his life. But I think, Joe Nick, you really hit one of the key phases of his life when you talk about that period in Austin in the early 70s. You know, becoming empowered again as an artist. Uh, that 1975 record, Redheaded Stranger, put him back on the map. A concept album about a preacher who kills his wife. I mean, even his record label had to be looking at him going, are we going to put this thing out? The label really didn't believe in it, right, Joe Nick? 
That's yes, that's uh, but again, he, Will, Willie's always tilted against windmills, and in the case of Redheaded Stranger, he really did. He cut an album for four thousand bucks in a week, it only clocked in at 35 minutes, and he delivered it. Uh, actually, his manager Neil Reshin and Neil's other client, uh, Waylon Jennings, delivered a demo to Bruce Lundvall, the head of Columbia Records. And Bruce listened and said, This is a nice demo. And he didn't want to put it out. And Waylon got in his face, mm-hmm. which, what a great intimidation tactic. Waylon got a guy in dress, <laughs> black leather, all greasy and sweaty, leaning across your desk, telling you, You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and Neil got him one of these contracts uh, with artistic control. Neil is it was very important in the sense that uh, he, for Waylon Jennings, when he renegotiated Waylon's contract for RCA back in the uh, late 60s, it was the first time that an artist had artistic control, control of their product in anything recorded in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So he did that with Willie when he signed with Columbia. So Lundvall didn't really have a chance. No one wanted to put it out, but they had to put it out, and they did, and uh, lo and behold, some uh, a bunch of disc jockeys were ready to pay Willie back for all the good years that uh, he'd treated uh, radio people well. Now they finally had a song that they thought they could push, and it was called Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. In twilight glow I see Blue Eyes cry and rain when we kissed goodbye and part. I knew we'd never meet again. Joe Nick, we can't talk about Willie Nelson in the seventies without talking about outlaw country. You talk about Outlaw Country and you think Willie and Waylon Jennings. They were at the center of this movement. Willie's 1976 album, Wanted the Outlaws, that became country's first platinum album. Explain to us what Outlaw Country really was. Was it just a marketing ploy? Well, the album, Wanted the Outlaws, was certainly just a marketing venture. Uh, But what it really represented with this outlaw movement was Waylon in Nashville and he really led the charge in, in the late 60s, early 70s. He was a rock and roll band. He was Buddy Holly yeah. in a country context. And he was the first country act to play arenas and coliseums. I mean, he was that big. He was the first crossover. Mm-hmm. And he was hard charging and did it his way. And he was he wanted complete control. And he loved being in the recording studio. And that, to that yin, Willie was the yang of this free spirit who recorded with anyone, was recording with Jerry Wexler at the time in in New York and uh, experimenting with the music, but basically so outside the box that he wasn't even in Nashville. Out of that came this sense that uh, whether you're country or folk, all of a sudden there were a lot of guys showing up in Austin with cowboy hats, long hair and boots, and dragging around guitars. And, And it wasn't just Austin, it was Texas. And it was all over the United States, and it was kind of this new alternative category for people that, you know, it used to be, if you wanted to make it here in in Texas, you had to go to L.A., San Francisco if you're a hippie, Nashville if you're a country, or New York, and that was it. Mm -hmm. But this whole movement was predicated on, you don't have to go anywhere. Be here and start your own little provincial movement. And it was built not on an industry of recording, but on this idea of a bunch of clubs. 
Well, so so uh, they're outlaws in the sense that they're outsiders, but also it you know, yeah. has to be said that, that uh, Willie has broken a few laws in his time, <laughs> whether we're talking about the marijuana Always. thing or, or you know, racking up $17 million that he owes the IRS. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I can't even imagine possessing a fraction of $17 million, much less owing that in taxes. Well, it's interest. I mean, interest was a lot of it, and a lot of it was just sloppy work, but... Uh, I'm not trying to justify anything other than he grew up so poor. He never he never made any money to pay taxes with until he started selling enough uh, uh, songs and generating enough royalties that the IRS showed up and said, hey, you owe us this. Mm-hmm. So he'd pay it. Every time that he had a bill, he paid it. Well, one of the factors that led to his termination of uh, uh, his agreement with Neil Resch and his manager is Neil didn't pay some taxes when things were started blowing up. There was bills, there were court battles, there were discussions, there were uh, accounting firms involved. So there was, what shall we say, a convergence <laughs> of uh, problems, and it all resulted in this tax bill of $17 million. And he deserved it, but all I can say is he could have taken the easy way out with bankruptcy. He didn't. It should have broken uh, a lesser person. It should have broken him, and it didn't somehow. I think it was really the lowest point in his life uh, once he made it in the business. Mm-hmm. If you had to sum it up in a, in a few words, how do you explain how this guy's music has transcended these generations and these genres and appeals to so many millions of people after all these years? What is it about Willie Nelson that separates him from maybe just about any other country artist of the last 40 years? Well, not even country. And, and I'll say this. He has this talent that every politician in the world would want that no matter what you project on him, you're probably right. <laughs> so yeah. if you see him as the great country traditionalist, yeah, he took Merle and, and Ray Price out on the road and uh, last of the breed. If you see him as this outside-the-box, welcome-all-comers guy, that explains Snoop Dogg freestyling over his music. If you see him as the the champion of the the independent family farmer, he's that. He's also probably the most significant pothead in America. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he he preaches peace, and yet he comes from a hardcore uh, underworld in uh, Fort Worth. It's whatever you think he is, you're probably right. And uh, I, I've never seen anyone like this. Joe Nick, Willie's 76. Even he can't live forever. Five decades from now, where is he going to fit in the musical canon? Elvis. All right, all you... People don't say he's talking out of turn, but but I really think he's going to be as big or bigger than Elvis. He's a singer. He's got a distinctive voice. His playing is great. I mean, that's probably his greatest quality right now. He's written great songs. And he had told me back when I interviewed him in uh, 2004, he had over 2,000 tracks finished in the can that had not been released. Wow, wow, wow. So think of it this way, uh, <laughs> all you Elvis fans. We're going to be hearing new Willie Nelson music in the 22nd century. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> Joe Nick Potosky, Willie Nelson and Epic Life. Thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions, Joe Nick. Hey, thank you all for having me and uh, look forward to seeing you down the trail. Been feeling kind of free. But I'd rather feel your arms around me Cause you're taking away Everything that I wanted What are your thoughts on Willie Nelson's legendary career and latest album? 
Are you a veteran of his 4th of July picnic? Leave us a comment about Willie or anything else in the rock and roll universe at 888-859-1800. When we come back, it's time to take a trip to the desert island, and we'll talk with a real-life stranded music fan. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I hope you'll be happy someday. Your memory won't die in my grave. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And regular listeners will know that that music means we are going to take a trip now to the Desert Island, one of our favorite segments of the show. Greg, usually it's you or me playing a song we can't live without that we're loading into the Desert Island jukebox. But really, you and I, this has just been a hypothetical exercise. We have never actually been stranded on a desert island. We did, however, get, I think, one of the coolest emails Sound Opinions ever has received from a listener, Alex Gunderson, who was stranded on a desert island and had to face that problem of what music he was going to bring with him. He's a Ph.D. candidate now at Duke University, and he's with us on the line. Alex, for the listeners, explain to us how you came to be stranded. So I'm a biologist, and I had just graduated with my undergraduate degree in biology. So I was looking around uh, at just interesting jobs and stumbled upon this one to do work in the Galapagos Islands with seabirds. And the job was basically living on this uninhabited island in the Galapagos for seven months. You sent along a picture of the tents, the camp. It doesn't doesn't look like it was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of, you know, modern amenity. But that doesn't mean it wasn't fun. I mean, we were, we were basically living on a beach, but it was certainly challenging basically living in tents for that whole time with the same three or four people. Alex, you can actually help us with a question that's been nagging us for some time. Occasionally, we'll hear from some wiseacre who says, you know, there's no electricity on a deserted island. How can you listen to music? How did you solve this problem? Yes, uh, we had one solar panel 
that we could use to recharge batteries. So that's how I kept my Discman going. And that was it for electricity. So this can be done, though. You can have a jukebox on the desert island. You, you could have a jukebox on a desert island, yes, as long as you've got a solar panel and it never breaks. <laughs> Luckily, it never yeah. broke while we were there. <laughs> That's great. So you had to stock up your disc man. Your jukebox was a disc man. Only so much luggage you can bring with you to an island. How did you go about making the decisions as to what CDs to bring with you? You know, I have a hard time remembering exactly what my thought process was because it was many years ago now, but... In general, it looks like I basically went with reliable choices, things I'd been listening to for at least a a few years. I was constrained in how much I could bring considerably. I think I only brought like 20 CDs or something like that. Yeah, I imagine 10 years later you could bring uh, an iPod full of uh, music, thousands of songs. So you you were down to about 20. So what were the reliables? What were the ones that you knew you had to bring and why? So some of the ones that I had been listening to since basically I was in high school were things like Radiohead's OK Computer, Tools, Anima, some Led Zeppelin, Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore. And did they sustain you? I mean, did you find out new things about this music, listening to it uh, that intensively over that period of time, or or did you just get sick of them after a while? Um, You know, they sustained me, but I absolutely got sick of them after a while. (laughs) Um, Just having some music there was great, even if I had, you know, listened to it a thousand times in the last month. But, you know, when I got off the island, I listened to anything but those 20 CDs for, <laughs> for at least a year, um, mm-hmm. and some of them I still have not listened to again. Well, tell me one that you wore out on. One that I wore out on was Miles Davis's The Complete Birth of the Cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, wow. That one I have not listened to again. I brought two Miles Davis CDs, that one and Kind of Blue, and I just got back into Kind of Blue again, listened to it for the first time like two months ago. You know, a lot of the stuff I brought was sort of classics. I brought Jimi Hendrix, and I brought John Lee Hooker, and I brought James Brown, stuff that had lasted a long time in popular culture. So I thought, you know, they'd maintain themselves throughout the course of my time there, but it turns out you, it doesn't matter how good something is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you listen to it enough times in a row, you, you just don't want to hear it anymore. You know every note backward and forward, right? Right, exactly. Uh, now, now, what about a disc that absolutely sustained you, and to this day you can put on and say, I knew I loved it, but I love it even more now after my seven-month intensive listening period? You know, that's a, that's a tough question. I would not say that there is any disc that I came out of saying I loved it more after this experience. Mm. Um, this is sort of a, a negative view of this desert island thing, but for the most part, I listen to all of them less, and <laughs> I sort of recoil at some of them sometimes. Mm-hmm. But you got bailed out, right, at uh, about the seven-month mark? There were some new researchers that came in and brought some new music that kind of saved the trip for you? Yeah, at the very end of the trip, some people came in to replace our group uh, to keep the study going, and, you know, they brought a few new CDs, and one of them that they had was Beck's Guero album. 
Like the last three days that we were there, we listened to only that album, <laughs> like all day, every day, um, just because it was new and it was upbeat and it was, well, it was new. <laughs> just dying <laughs> to hear something different. Part. Okay, Alex. So you're the most experienced deserted island listener that we know of. What advice would you give to someone who is setting out on a trip similar to yours? I think I would bring something that maybe you haven't quite figured out yet. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, you might figure out that you really like it. And the other one is that if it turns out that you don't like it, that's okay. And you won't sort of, <laughs> it removes an album that you really like from going into the pile of something you no longer like after <laughs> listening to it for a thousand times. Right. Sage advice from biologist and island survivor Alex Gunderson. Alex, thanks for talking to us. Thanks, guys. Like a snake calling on a phone. I've got no time to be alone. Some are coming at me all the time. You better think I'll lose my mind. Cause I'm stranded on my own. All right, Mr. Cott, it is your turn now to be stranded. Alex goes with uh, not taking anything obvious, taking something that you're going to have to live with. Are you going to take that advice this week? I am, Jim, and it's all because of you, my friend. A few weeks ago, you dissed one of my favorite bands of all time. You flicked the jam off like they were nothing. They were worthless. Well, you know, it's just that those mod trousers never came in a size 52 waist. I felt excluded. See, I got past the tailored suits. I never really cared about that, but at one point I was obsessed with this band. And I'm surprised that you don't like them more because I see them as really the link between two of your favorite songwriters of all time, Ray Davis of the Kinks and Damon Albarn of Blur. So here we have Paul Weller of The Jam in between those two icons of yours as the primary chronicler of British everyday life, of British street life. And I don't think he's ever done it better than in the song I'm going to play. He borrowed the title, I think a little bit tongue-in-cheek, from a uh, Hollywood movie, 1953 movie called The Bandwagon. The song That's Entertainment was sung a number of times in that movie by people like Fred Astaire and other actors. Now, Weller was using that as just sort of a commentary walking home from a pub late one night, looking at the street life around him, and just musing about British working-class life. But I think some people misread this song as a sort of a sarcastic put-down of that. I don't hear that at all. I hear this as an elegy, something poignant, bittersweet about the people around him. They're all trying to be anywhere but here, but they're sort of stuck with these everyday lives. And I think there's a certain amount of sadness and empathy in his voice. You know, the jam had this rep as, yeah, they were the mods. They had this sort of jittery style, very up-tempo. With this song, though, they stripped it all back. They pulled everything back to just a bass, an acoustic guitar, and a single snare drum. And I think that sparseness really adds to the poignance of this song. It is a great performance. And what really kills me are the voices. Foxton on harmony and Weller with those falsetto, wordless cries. Here it is. That's entertainment from the jam on Sound Opinions.
That's Entertainment by The Jam, Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick. The Sound Opinion's Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Got some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minoff. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia. Susan, won't you give me a line? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Greg, Jim, hi, this is Mike in Richmond, Illinois. I think you should do a feature on songs everybody likes except for me. One of you two guys, I don't know which, a few years ago, compared um, the guitar interaction of Eric Clapton and Dwayne Allman on the song Layla to uh, two hyenas wailing. amusing, even though it's many, many, many people's favorite song. Personally, I think the song Free Bird by Leonard Skinner is so incredibly overbearing and obnoxious. The last uh, 30 to 60 seconds of that song is sheer overkill, and I hate it. Freebird by Leonard Skinner. I don't know why anybody would like it. That's my sound opinion. Uh, I really love your show, guys. Keep up the good work. Hey, this is Gene from Chicago. I want to talk about the high fidelity sound. I think it's crazy that we say that digital can never eclipse vinyl. I mean, I'm too young to really experience vinyl. I'll admit that. But the idea with digital... The technology is getting so much better and so much faster that you'll easily be able to reproduce sound waves at a much higher rate than the human ear can hear. And it's really just a question of how you can produce those in your digital producing program. So 
That's my comment. Thanks. You should do a show about controversial songs. Here's my list. Number one, Imagine by John Lennon. Two, Southern Man by Neil Young. Three, I Touch Myself by The Divinals. Black Sabbath. Five, American Skin by Bruce Springsteen. Six, Fight the Power by Public Enemy. I have a few more controversial songs. I'll call you back. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.